welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com or go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody. How are you all doing? Good, I hope. Everything is good over here in my North Florida. As a matter of fact, I was telling, I was thinking it's, I'm coming up on a year that we bought. You know how sometimes a year goes by quick? And this time it went by quick, but I look back on everything that we've done for a year and talk about a lot of changes. Yeah. You know, the kind of things that if you think, man, if I, if I would have known this go, going out the gate, I probably wouldn't have done it. So sometimes, you know, that ignorance is bliss kind of thing. It's a good reason for it. But anyway, you know, it's like once you're 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 done with it, kind of, you're you're happier that you did it. And that's the case, you know, with a move out of uh out of South Florida. And uh, but besides that, everything is good. Uh people asking chicken world, chicken world is good, except I've lost two chicks against again to hawks um same thing you know the fall weather we've always have hawks and predator birds around here but they seem to be coming out more and i've lost two chicks to them even though i'm real careful but when you have free range animals forget it there's only so much that you could um you can't you can't do anything about it and, they, and these chickens are quick by the way these are little bantams and they're pretty fast but yeah I'm not happy about that, so I'm not going to talk about that anymore. But anyway, guys, uh, I also work for my sponsor, Freethinker Projects. Again, they provide uh, virtual mailbox and mail forwarding services, Florida-based. They can uh, scan your mail for you, forward it to wherever you're at, uh, whatever the case might be. Again, uh, they also, if you have packages, a lot of people now think, they're very careful about having packages delivered to the doorstep, especially if they're going to be away. They can receive packages for you and either forward them or hold them for you to pick them up. Uh, they also have online uh, notary services, which means you can be anywhere and you can notarize documents online with them. And lastly, they also uh, do services as a registered agent for the state of Florida, which you need to establish any type of corporation LLC in the state. They can provide you a personal uh, firsthand address here, not a P.O. box or some type of mail, uh, you know, mailbox place. And of course, they receive your mail for you as the registered agent and forward it to you. They scan it and let you know what type of correspondence you have. So look them up at Freethinker Projects with an S at the end dot com, Freethinkerprojects.com if you have need of that type of service. Now let's get on to the good part. The good part is who I have for a guest. 
and this gentleman, this is the first time that he's been here on the show. And um, his name is John Kachuba. He's the award-winning author of 12 books and numerous articles, short stories, and poems. Uh, he holds advanced degrees in creative writing and teaches that subject through the Ohio University in the Gotham Writers Workshop. He's also a member of the Historical Novel Society and the Horror Writers Association. He frequently speaks on paranormal and metaphysical topics, and he's a regular speaker at universities and libraries, paranormal conferences, and on podcasts like this one. Radio and TV has been a repeat guest on Coast to Coast AM. Uh, he's appeared in the Sundance Channel's TV production of Love, Lust, the Paranormal. Uh, he's also been a faculty member at many writers' conferences, such as the Antioch Writers' Conference and the Florida Sun Coast Writers' Conference. He's available for future conferences and writing workshops. And what's really interesting is that amidst all writing all those books, he's actually written about a favorite subject, which is ghosts. And it's going to be a really interesting conversation, believe me. Help me to welcome him. How are you doing today, John? Thank you, Marlene. I'm doing fine. I'm doing very well. Great. Um, we would, before we started to record, we had, we, we talked about that you had done several books uh, about ghosts, you know, haunted places and everything. And I, I asked you about one of your recent books, which was, it's a supposedly a fictional book, but you were telling me that it does have a, a seed of truth to it, shall we say? Um, I believe the, the, the title is Dark Entry. And can we start off with that? Because um, even though it's set in, uh, I guess, what is it? Is this is the setting fictional or, or, or is there any truth to the, the setting of that book? That, that's where the story lies because the setting is an actual location. It is. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I grew up in Connecticut and that's where Dark Entry is, situ is situated in the novel. Okay. And the actual Dark Entry is, is a real place. Uh, it was known as Dudley Town back in the 18th century when it was settled. And it was settled up on a hill up in northwest, um, northwestern part of uh, Connecticut. And over the years, it had a very strange history where several people went insane, committed suicide, uh, killed each other. There was very, very weird things that happened to this very small community up on this hill, up this mountain. And uh, part, of the, part of the legend behind it is that the Dudley family, who were the original founders of Dudleytown, they, they came from uh, England back in the early 18th century, and they were supposedly related to the Dudleys of England, who were very political. Yes. Uh, a couple of the Dudleys lost their heads mm -hmm. because they're on the wrong side of politics. Yeah, around so, the Elizabethan age, I believe, was yeah. one of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they talk about the, um, you know, sort of the curse of the Dudley family coming, coming to the New World with them. But for whatever reason, they had all this strange history going on. And I went up to Dudley Town when I was still living in Connecticut. I live in Ohio now in Cincinnati. But when I went up, uh, I visited the location because I was doing more historical research that had absolutely nothing to do with ghost stories. And when I went up there, I found that this place was it was just incredible. Um, there's really nothing left of the, of the village. There are cellar holes, you know, old stone cellar holes that are still there. Some old wells are still there. But the road is, it was a dirt road. It's pretty much gone now. And the woods, the forests, 
have just taken over. In fact, they they were always so thick that, as I said, it was nicknamed Dark Entry because once you camp this mountain, it was it was like dark, like sunlight never penetrated uh, through okay. the forest in this place. So great atmosphere and a uh, great story. So my novel Dark Entry takes a little bit of um, poetic license with the story. Mm -hmm. I'll admit that. Um, but it talks about a Native American curse, which was also part of the Dudley Town lore, that the original land was supposedly stolen from um, an Indian sachem who then was killed and you know cursed everybody. So I kind of use that as the jumping off point okay. uh, for people that live up there now and have some some events with this uh, entity that's uncovered after, you know, centuries. Um, okay. I, I mean, I like the story. The interesting thing is they're um, on dark entry today. It's all private property now. And there are maybe half a dozen homes up there and they've put together what they call a dark entry association. Um, oh, really? And they almost oh, they call it dark entry. Yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, the street, the street that goes up to it is called Dark Entry Road, you know. Okay. Um, so they put together this association. And as you can imagine, because of uh, the wow. legends and everything else, this location was constantly being visited by people who were ghost hunting, uh, yes. maybe trying to do some, you know, ritualistic kind of things. And it got right. to be a real, a real pest, a real menace for the people that live up there. So it's now private property, no trespassing, et cetera, et cetera. So when I wrote this novel, I got a letter from. Oh, I, you know what? I didn't say anything. And I was like, I wonder. <laughs> right. So I got this like, letter. Thanks. From, yeah. I got this letter from the Dark Entry Association. Interestingly enough, no person signed it. It was signed by the Dark Entry Association. <laughs> Nobody wanted to put their name on it, but we want to tell right. you. And basically, they threatened me with, with lawsuits and everything else like that. And I just, you know, I ignored the letter. Um, I certainly wasn't doing anything illegal. I'm certainly allowed that? and legal to write a fiction, you know, a novel about a location. Right. So, but anyway, a little note. And from what you're telling me, it already had that history prior to you, you know, using that setting already. So it's well, like. Yeah, right. I mean, that, that history had been out there for you know, a couple centuries. I didn't invent it. It's there. And, and, you, know. you know what? If you were so worried, why did you name the place Dark? I mean, why did you keep that name Dark Entry? It's <laughs> right. like, you should have like made it like happy and sunny or something. But right. Happy like... rest or something. Or, you know, <laughs> fluffy clouds. I don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I know. It becomes a, yeah. Um, people people don't don't realize legend trippers, because that's what I call them. You know, they, they're these that they're looking to have that moment. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like, oh, let's take a trip and then let's get lost in the woods. <laughs> but yeah, they um, a lot of these uh, places that get deserted. And this is a little so, you know. Uh, I've had people always tell me of that they've come to, like what you said, used to be villages, not really towns, just villages that have been abandoned. And some people have had some very unusual. Um, I gotta tell you. Uh, some people have actually seen things or they've actually felt like really uncomfortable. And, and it's, that's, you know, where there's almost something, whether you want to say it's from the people that live there or from the forest, because the, most of these places, like you said, once they get abandoned, they get overgrown right away. Right. And um, 
but that that's 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 a great well, let story. Me, let me tell you a, a connected story to that. Okay. When I went up there originally just to do this historical research, I had a camera, and I was mm -hmm. taking pictures of these cellar holes and you know what was left. Um, and this was the these were the old days before digital cameras. Yay! <laughs> Somebody who understands about that. Every once in a while, I'll tell my audience, you know, there was a time that people had to pay. I know to get right. their pictures developed. Right, and we used something called film, which nobody. Yeah, had. yeah. And sometimes you <laughs> developed, you know, sometimes it was like for nothing. Yeah. But um, so I was taking all these pictures, and uh, after I got them back from the pharmacy who developed them in those yeah. days, I was looking at one of them. And, you know, they were all overgrown. They, like I said, they're basically stone foundations and they're overgrown with ivy and, and leaves and all this stuff. And I'm looking at one of them and it looks like, it looks like I can see like a face in there. Right. Okay. So I said, oh, well, I mean, that's, you know, the leaves and everything else made this pattern, the shadows. And yeah, I'm, I'm imagining right. a face. So I enlarged the photo and I enlarged it a couple of times. And every time I enlarged it, it became more defined as a face instead, okay, <laughs> instead yeah. of leaves. Um, so I was, I was, I was shocked. I didn't know what I had. So at the time, like I said, I was living in Connecticut and uh, I wasn't living, I was living in the same town, in fact, as Ed and Lorraine Warren, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, everybody in your show yes, probably yes. knows the ghost hunters. Um, so I called them out of the blue. I mean, I didn't know them personally at all. And I called them and I, I told them I was up in Dudley Town and I got these pictures and would they like to see them? And uh, I guess, I don't know if, I think it was Lorraine who I spoke to on the phone. Anyway, they said, oh yeah, come on. They invited me to their house. Mm -hmm. So I, I literally lived just a couple miles from them. So I went over to their house and they were really gracious. And they let me in and we were sitting around talking. It was just great because I knew who they were and who their reputation. I'm thinking, wow, this is right. pretty cool, you know? And so I showed them my pictures and they just kind of looked at me and said, okay, I said, let me show you something. And they took out a photo album that was like, <laughs> like this thing. Like, yeah. And it was all pictures from Dudley town that they had taken over. There were several visits up there. Oh, they found up there. Kinds of, oh, they had like orbs and they had like these mists and they had uh, different colored anomalies, like, you know, red streaks and all this stuff. So, you know, they were right there. They said, oh yeah, that place is haunted. Oh, and so they didn't need any. Vincent, here you're thinking, I'm going to take this right. picture. They might tell me. <laughs> right. They're like, yeah, all right, that's a, that's okay. Yeah, it was amazing. Wow. So let me ask you, did um, when was it? Did you ever find out when was it that it finally became depopulated? Was it uh, in like the 20th century or the late 1900s? When well, did it was it was more like uh, probably the late 19th century, probably mm -hmm. maybe after the Civil War. Pretty much everybody was gone by then. I think okay. there was one guy who was a doctor, and I think he was there until about 1920 or something, but I think he was the only one. Okay. Um, like I say, people do live there now. They built some new houses. I mean, it's, you know, it's a pretty location. You know, you're isolated right. up on this mountain, and, and all of northwestern Connecticut is pretty, it's pretty rural compared to you know, the rest of the state and it's pretty affluent. So it's nice territory. Yeah. But the, no, the, the reason I was asking is that, you know, it makes you wonder, you know, I imagine by then the Dudleys were gone. Oh yeah. You know, and yeah. did the people that stayed behind, even as little by little, they started, you know, leaving. And was anybody that got cursed along the way, you know, or was it just them or something like that? That's a very, right. well, yeah. Story. I mean, it went beyond the family. It, it, it I did. Affecting, oh yeah. Affected various residents. Um, 
there was a woman, what was the story there? There were two men that got in an argument over something and shot each other to death and they were like best friends. So people, basically what was going on is people were saying that there was something that was literally driving people in Dudley Town insane. Okay. You okay. know, they were- Right, and like you it. said, because of the small amount, the odds were very high. Right, like, right. What, you know, all these people are gonna act like like uh, bloodlust. Uh... Right, That's... I mean, if you see, uh, I. There's some sketches that, you know, if you look it up, you can find there's a, a sketch of an old map of Dudley Town that shows the, I think, only two streets and the homes there. And there can't be more than, I don't know, maybe maybe a dozen houses, if that. Um, okay. So there weren't a lot of people living there at all. It was a small little village. Right. Right. And, you know, that's really funny because usually, I'm not going to say all the time, but usually when there's that little residence, everybody kind of gets along together because they kind of depend on each other. That's right. So when you when you have stuff like that happening, it's like, well, right. yeah, they're, 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 I hate to say it, but there's places, you know, um, you know, I speak sometimes to a lot of people that the hunters or people that are camp that are into camping, you know, like deep wood camping. And they'll tell you stories about there's certain places that they go to in the woods that things something changes. Right. That, that they, they, they feel like I got to get out of here. They feel being watched. They just feel really uncomfortable, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, uneasy. And they say when they leave that area, they feel better. But there's and it, I've talked to so many people who describe very similar uh, where they find everything is fine. And they just come to this one area that they like they look at, you know, there's a group. They look amongst each other like and everybody's feeling weirded out. Um, and, you know, that gut feeling that everybody a lot of times people put off to imagination is like, yeah, you know what? It's like, let's get out of here. Like now we got to like leave. Right. So yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, that, that's and I know you also. Let me ask you the 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 books that you wrote about the ghost stories were these like people that you interviewed or these were like historical ghost stories like about certain places. Right. So I have um, I have two books about Ohio, Ghost Hunting Ohio, uh -huh. and I have Ghost Hunting Ohio on the Road Again, which was a, a sequel. Okay. I have ghost Hunting Illinois. Now all three books. <clears throat> um, are about actual locations that are actually open to the public. So people can go. So it's, you know, a haunted theater, a haunted hotel, a haunted restaurant, uh, maybe a haunted B&B, something like that. Okay. So when I wrote those books, I, I went to every single location. Uh, okay. And if I could, like a haunted hotel, I would go and I'd say, what's, you know, is there a haunted room? And they'll say, oh yeah, number six. I'll say, well, can I stay in number six? <laughs> And okay, so I would stay in number six overnight. And so basically I was writing about, these are all nonfiction. So right. I would write about whatever I experienced or I, but I'd also interview people there. So like at a hotel, okay. for instance, I talked to the desk clerk, the security guards, the, the housekeepers, you know, maintenance people, anybody and said, so you're here all the time. Mm -hmm. you know, what have you seen? And so I'd get their stories. So that was for those three. Then I wrote another book called Ghost Hunters, and it's got a very long subtitle. But in that one, I interviewed people who were sort of, um, I'll say paranormal celebrities, like the Warrens, for instance. Mm -hmm. okay. I have an interview with them, um, with Joshua P. Warren, who is no relation to Ed and Lorraine in North Carolina. And I have some just weird kind of chapters, like uh, one is what is um what if you buy a haunted house uh, okay 
what what happens or can you sell a haunted house so it's like haunted real estate you know uh, so it's a it's a strange mix but it's a very it's an interesting book so there's those um those ghost hunting books particularly yeah they, they well i i know that the sometimes because i i did paranormal investigations since the 1990s so you know along the way you know i've i've had contact with a lot of people who unfortunately they think the, to do that is like what you see in the reality TV shows. And it's like, yeah, you'd be surprised. There's a lot of boring moments doing this. Oh yeah. But you're like, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I did uh, a couple you know, of investigations in Florida too. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it, it happens. It's, it comes. And I go, that's what it is. If you think that every case that you go out on, you're going to have that wow moment or that more often than not, no, either it's very subtle, nothing's there or sometimes, and I hate to say it, a lot of people, once upon a time, I tell people back in the nineties, if somebody heard something weird, they would, they would, they wouldn't think ghosts. They would check it out. They would think an animal, uh, a leaky something. They, they would investigate like, what's making that noise. Now it's the other way around. Somebody hears something strange. Everybody runs out of the house and sleeps in the car <laughs> because they're like, Hey, I've got a ghost in the house. That's right. what 20 years of, uh, of you know reality show you know tv shows have done to people's perception of when they get something weird going on at the house yeah so exactly. um you know that's one of the things as far as like that i've seen the you know how that that field has evolved um did have you ever had a paranormal experience is that what got you interested in this or um that's not just... really got me interested as i said i i grew up in connecticut so I was always a, a big history fan, you know, I okay. always liked the stories. So when you hear those kinds, you know, old history, invariably you hear about ghost stories and okay. that kind, you know, local legends. And those always fascinated me. Um, so I grew up with that, but I didn't really have any paranormal experiences okay. until I started, uh, you know, I guess my first book was, my first ghost book was 2014. So 2012, 2013, I started doing some you know, investigations for the book. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I started, you know, having a couple of things happen as I was, as I was doing investigations. Um, Isn't but, that, how did you feel? You know, um, the funny thing is I, I wasn't, a typical response would be, oh, you know, I was frightened, but I, but I really wasn't more than anything. I was sort of stunned and amazed. Right. You know, like mm -hmm. something happened, you're like, whoa, did you see that? You know, yes. I can't believe what I just saw, you know, or did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that too. And then only afterwards, you know, when, when you go home, go, well, that was pretty creepy. <laughs> right, right. Because in that moment, you're like, actually, because it's happening to you, you're experiencing right. it firsthand. Yeah. So like you say, like... you can sit there all night long for hours and nothing will happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, just like that, if you're there, you catch it and it's like, oh my God, you know. Yeah. Things yeah. actually happened. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, and, and I know exactly what you mean. Now that that book, the uh, that you wrote, the shapeshifter book. Okay, that's basically that's a nonfiction, as in what the how these stories have come out through history and. Right. Yeah. So it's called Shapeshifters: A History, and okay. um, it came out two thousand nineteen, and it was a it was a finalist in the uh, Bram Stoker Award. Um, okay. Hard Writers Association, which is, you know, I'm not tooting my own horn here, but it's, it's really a big deal. <laughs> yeah. um, but so, yeah, it's nonfiction. And what I did was I, I looked at shapeshifters and I'm sure your audience probably knows what they are, but just in case, mm -hmm. you know, it's a person who has the ability to 
change himself, transform himself into either another person, an animal, sometimes even an inanimate object, you know, like a like a broom, <laughs> for whatever reason. Uh, and and you know, we, we hear about these kinds of characters in fairy tales and folklore all around the world. Um, so what I was interested in was the the shapeshifter character was so is so popular. I, I was trying to figure out why. And so I just doing this sort of this, I guess more an academic study, but what I found was that, you know, going way back to ancient times, there have been shapeshifter stories. I mean, the earliest depiction of a shapeshifter is a cave painting that uh, from France that dates back to the Neolithic times, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. So this idea, this concept of somebody being able to transform into something else has been with us for a long, long time. So I was looking at shapeshifters in in mythology with you know greeks and romans and egyptians all the ancient things as well as you know other cultures uh, i was looking at shapeshifters in religion because there are a lot of shape-shifting characters and different religious beliefs i was looking at them in terms of popular culture you know thinking of the vampires and the werewolves and all the movies and the books and all this stuff that's out now about them I was also looking at them in terms of uh, psychology, trying to understand why the shapeshifter character is so popular, why it resonates with all of us today. What is it about the shapeshifter that makes us think, well, that's a pretty cool character, you know? Um, and so I even extended it to say that when you dress up for Halloween. Yeah, you are right. You're absolutely right. Right. You're putting yeah. on a different persona. And I think of people that do uh, cosplay, you know, where oh. they get these elaborate, elaborate costumes of mm -hmm. superheroes or whatever they want to be. And not only do they wear the costumes, but they talk like that character yes. talks. They'll eat what that character eats. <laughs> they yes. get in the role. So you ask yourself, well, you know, it's fun. I understand that. But is there something else? Is there something deeper? Is it like, wish fulfillment that you wish you were that strong as a superhero or that you could be invisible or whatever. Um, and I even looked at in, in literature, like I looked at uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, that famous okay. novel with Jekyll, who's this upstanding, kind, decent doctor saving people, you know, who despite all that has this desire to find out what it would be like if he can throw off all the bonds that hold us in place, religion, morality, the law. If you can get rid of all that and do whatever you wanted to do, what would you do? How would you be? And so he creates that potion. It becomes Mr. Hyde, right? This horrible, right. horrible person that actually killed, murders somebody later on. And he can't live with it and he kills himself. But I, but I think that in some ways the shapeshifter too um, when we see it in a movie or when you read about them in a book, I think in a way it's sort of uh, allowing us to vicariously get into that role and sort of safely throw off those bonds without going crazy and killing people. <laughs> yeah. I would think that, you know, like early man, you would think of, because I guess compared to other animals, let's say like the wolf or things, we were kind of weak, maybe, you know, admiration for their strength or their ferocity. Right. Like you wanted to have those uh, those traits, um, because well, back then men were kind of humans were kind of at the mercy of nature, for lack of a better word. Right. So not even back then. 
Um, when I talked about that cave painting, I mean, you hit it right mm -hmm. on the head, Marlene, because what that cave painting shows, it's in my shapeshifters book. There's a drawing of it. What it shows is what looks like a deer sort of standing on its hind legs with its arms kind of out, right? But if you look at it really closely, you'll see that the deer doesn't have hooves, but he's got fingers and toes. Now, deers don't have fingers and toes, right? And the eyes are dead center like this instead of being more right on the side, side exactly. Like so what, what archaeologists and anthropologists believe is that this is showing the transformation of a shaman into a deer. And so this is hunter magic. And the idea was what they believe was that the shaman would do these rituals while the hunters sat in front of him or whatever. And he would, you know, do these paintings about transforming into a deer or any kind of animal for that matter. Uh, and that the hunters would probably also be taking some natural hallucinogenics, mm -hmm. you know, from the environment. Right. So they would actually feel that they had become that animal. And if you become that animal, how easy is it to walk up to the animal and, and kill it in the hunt? Right. right. So they believe that this was how it was used. And even, uh, even today in cultures today, I have some accounts of some of the uh, African Bushmen mm -hmm. who do the same kind of thing. They go into these rituals and they believe they transform into tigers, hyenas, lions. And I have some first person accounts of them talking about it. And what they say is amazing how they say, I know I'm the lion. I could feel it. And, you know, so. Right. Exactly. That they, they transform themselves literally. In other words, yeah. as far as what they're saying right. versus, and, and people don't understand that now, but, but back then the, the success of a hunt, for example, meant the difference between life and death, let's say for a group of people. Absolutely. And, so as far as let's, let's put everything we can towards being successful in this hunt um as in you know that 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 belief in the supernatural being or something being able to aid you people don't realize back then that could make the difference between living or starvation in some cases uh when it came to hunting uh especially if you're talking winter time or you're talking you're hunting a dangerous animal for example uh all those things figured into it uh, and, and again, and you know, you always hear about uh, these hunters that they'll take a, like a trophy, like a, a claw or, you know, sometimes a tooth just to be able to say, I conquered that, that animal as in because of the strength mm -hmm. kind of thing. That's, uh, right. that, yeah. and I know that, um, what was it in the, was it the 16th century in France, they had, uh, they burned a couple of people for supposedly being werewolves. They well, they were saying they were werewolves, in other words, because they a bunch of people got murdered and they were accused the equivalent of witchcraft, but supposedly that they had done it while they were transformed into a wolf. Right. Yeah, I have um in that book I do have some accounts from France and Germany uh mm -hmm. from the 17th, 16th, 17th century. You're right. There's there's several cases of people who committed, you know, horrendous crimes, horrendous murders of people, not just killing them, but tearing them apart, actually, right. eating, you know, cannibalism, um, fully believing that they had transformed into wolves. Um, and, you know, in the early days, when they caught somebody like that, they'd burn them at the stake, mm -hmm. they accused them of witchcraft, but also of werewolfery. <laughs> there was an actual charge. 
Yeah, <laughs> werewolfery. Yeah. Wow. Um, but then, you know, later on, as you started getting into uh, like the 19th century, because even then some of these things were happening, uh, people would end up in a, you know, a mental institute. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's just, it's a strange thing. It's called lycanthropy, you know, where you believe you've transformed into a wolf. So. It makes you think also, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to put a modern twist, you know, maybe, you know, you were, you were talking as savage killers who said, you know, let me throw in there that I thought I was a wolf kind of deal or the devil made me do it. Right. Maybe I can get off. They didn't, I know, but you know, it was almost like it, I, I was under the spell of the devil and it made me want to eat people, you know? And I, one time when somebody, we were talking about like, because sometimes there were quite a number of people that end up getting murdered and uh, like you said, slaughtered. And uh, it's like, how did they get away with that? I go, let's face it. Back then, the populace believed this. Can you imagine you're one of these soldiers or whoever in the town and they tell you, go chase after this supposed killer. And those guys must have looked amongst themselves as like, do you really want to go out and catch whatever that is? You know, because <laughs> right. they, believe it or not, they believed that whoever they were trying to get was a, a witch slash shapeshifter slash whatever. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're writing out to find him right away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Popular belief. Wanna, nobody wanted to be the person to find them. <laughs> right. <laughs> you go. Um, After you. <laughs> you go. Did you see it? No, I didn't see anything. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> because people back then, it wasn't like something that you would think, okay, that this person is either insane or like now that we say we have serial killers. Back then, people really thought this was the devil and witchcraft and you name it, everything that everybody was afraid of. Right. Uh, even if you were a soldier or somebody that other things would make you afraid. But um, I think that's such an interesting subject because that's endured for many, many, God, for hundreds of years, that belief that we could um, change, you know, become something else, literally. And mm -hmm. even if you look at the um, some of the stories about the, the Native American, the skinwalker, uh, right legend that's kind of like what they're describing that you have a witch that's able to transform themselves into something else that's by right. dark magic right, and exactly. from what i understand that's that's why nobody over there if you're on any if you go to any of these native american reservations they don't want to talk about that that's like a, a forbidden subject like we're not going to talk about this because basically by talking about it you're you're calling it to you so exactly right yeah yeah, and it's very popular, especially in, in the Southwest, you know, yes. among like the Diné and the Utes and some other people. Um, yeah, and they don't they don't want to talk about it. They, it, it's real for them, and you know, they don't want to bring it on. Let me ask, considering um, that you said something like about Dracula, you know, because people don't realize prior to Bram Stoker writing about Dracula, there were other stories about vampires. It wasn't like he came up with the the, the vampire thing, it would have been around. It's just that he wrote the Dracula novel and, you know, took off from there. Right. Uh, and of course that's been, God, every version of a vampire has been written about. Um, and sometimes I think, do you, do you, what do you think is the future, let's say of, um, or possibilities of in the horror genre, as far as villains, if you want to call them that, you know, I don't know, Marlene. It's a good question. Uh, you know, I mean, Anne Rice started off with the vampire stuff in literature. I mean, she didn't start. She mentioned Bram Stoker and everything. Right, right. But she really hit it big. And when her books came out, there were so many other imitators, uh, other mm -hmm. vampire books. 
uh, and there was, you know, Twilight and all these shows on TV and everything else. I kind of yes. think we're saturated with vampires. Um, yes. They've, they've made an interesting transition, though. What was the early, the original vampire folklore, if you look at it, does come primarily from Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what a vampire was in those days, what they believed a vampire was, it wasn't anything like we read about in Bram Stoker. It wasn't anything like you see uh, you know, Bella Lugosi or, or some of the brand new shiny, you know, sexy vampires that have all kinds <laughs> of money and they drive Ferraris. Yeah. And, you know, nothing <laughs> like that at all. They were basically, um, they were, they were corpses. I mean, they were, they were people, yes. but they were considered, um, the descriptions of them were always that they were healthy, that they were, you know, relatively stocky and they, mm-hmm. you know, ruddy complexion, kind of red, um, because they were feeding off other people, <laughs> you know, right. they were doing fine, but they weren't shapeshifters. They couldn't shape, they couldn't turn into anything. They were simply mm-hmm. what they were. They were the, you know, walking dead or what do you want to call it? That's, I guess, the zombies, but, you know, they were, they were not anything like um, Stoker. In fact, Stoker, as far as I can tell, was probably the first person to talk about a, a vampire that was a shapeshifter. Um, right. You know, there were a couple of vampire novels, uh, Carmilla and um, I forgot the other one, uh, eight couple that were out before. Mm-hmm. Were, um, you know, they're about vampires, but they weren't shapeshifters. Right. Varney, Varney the uh, vampire was not. Right. So there's a scene in Stoker's Dracula where I, I guess it's Lucy who's in bed and she sees by the window, he's this big bat trying to get into the window kind of fluttering against the window mm-hmm. and the bat disappears. And instantly when it disappears, Count Dracula is standing in her room on the other side of the window. So obviously the thing is that, you know, he transformed. Right. Uh, and there's another scene in there where um, I'm losing it. Okay, I'm losing the, <laughs> the main character, uh, the guy who was looking for him. I can't okay. Which one? Van Helsing? Not Van Helsing. The um, Parker. Part, part, yeah, thank you. Thank you. John okay. Yeah. There's a scene where he looks out the window. He's in Dracula's castle where he looks out the window and okay. he sees Dracula crawling down the wall. Right. Yes. Vertical wall crawling down like, like a squirrel or something. Mm-hmm. Right. So Stoker put a new twist on vampires and okay. those things carried through and then even more got added on, you know, where vampires right. could fly and all kinds of stuff, you know. But to your question originally, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think vampires. I don't know where else to go with vampires. Well, um, the reason why I asked is, I want to say maybe until the 1970s, vampires were ugly and horrible and very bad looking. And then, like you said, right. they became very uh, stylish well, yeah. <laughs> and good looking. Um, I want to say, if I think back, and I'm going to go by the books made into, I want to say maybe Salem's Lot like was one of the last ones that really made them like horrible looking, like scary looking. How's that? Mm-hmm. But everything after that was like you said, like Twilight, and even the there was the there was a Dracula movie that they made into a play. That I think Frank Langella played the part. That's right. But you know, the worst it got was that guy had fangs. You know, but that was it. He was great looking. Uh, and then of course everything that comes after that, Twilight and everything. It's like, and it's like, I almost the, the reason why I asked is that I almost want to go back to 
By the way, and that thing that you mentioned, people don't realize that back then people did believe it. They, there's been proof of what they call deviant burials, where they have found people, like you said, in Eastern Europe, where they would have a sickle, a stone in their mouth, something placed on the skeleton, on the body, which what remains is a skeleton, basically to keep them pinned into their right. grave. Right. Because back then people did believe that that the, the that the dead person could come back and suck the life and blood out of them, which is what you said. That's what people were afraid of. Not that they were, you know, that they were going to turn into a bat or a wolf. And uh, yeah, it's almost like that. That's why I asked because it's almost like the horror genre. It's like, okay, the horror genre is not that scary anymore. As far as let's say the vampires are concerned. And I definitely agree with you over the oversaturation, but it's like, what happened to that? They're just, besides being like, you know, out to kill you or whatever, use you, um what's what's wrong with making them horrible looking or scary looking or anything like that well when i did um when i wrote shapeshifters i i researched in a couple different countries and i was in romania i went to transylvania you did yeah because i wanted to see the uh the so-called dracula sites okay And, and i'm sure your readers or your listeners probably know and you probably do too that there's there's some there's some uh belief that Stoker's Count Dracula is based at least in part on this guy named Vlad Tepish, who was a, a medieval right. prince in Transylvania, a real character. Um, mm -hmm. You know, pretty pretty ruthless, pretty murderous, although what medieval prince wasn't. I was going to say, the times demanded it. I hate to yeah. say it, but... Oh, yeah, yeah. But he had this reputation of being very bloodthirsty, and and some people in Romania considered, thought maybe he was a vampire. So there could have been, you know, some takeoff on that. So I visited those sites, um, one of his old castles, uh, his birthplace. I went to his tomb. And oh. interesting, well, the interesting thing about that is it's in a place called uh, Snegov in Romania. And it's a little town, very small town. There's a lake. And in the middle of the lake is a little island. It's, it can't be more than, I don't know, maybe two acres, three acres, something like that. Okay. But on that uh, on that island is a um, it's a chapel, and it's a typical uh, sort of Romanian style chapel, onion onion domes, you know, and the Orthodox cross and all that kind of stuff. And when you go inside, that is the place where he's buried, and you can see this uh, sort of grave in the ground with a little plaque on it. But in the 1930s, some anthropologists. Uh, unearthed the grave, I guess I wanted to just check, or I, want, I don't know exactly what they were doing, but they opened it up again and found it empty. <laughs> so the question now is, where is Vlad Tepish? You know, was he a vampire? <laughs> Did he leave his grave and is he walking around somewhere? So. And they've never found his um, his remains, no. I take it. No, no, no. There's, there's even some question as to whether he was ever buried there. Um, he was he was literally killed by his own men at one point, and it's unclear really what happened to his body. But it's interesting because you have all this stuff. Romania is so soaked right now in vampire, uh, in Dracula lore, and it's mm -hmm. it's a moneymaker for them. Oh, I'm sure it is. Oh, man. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Well, from what I understand, the, the populace there doesn't see Vlad as a bad guy. To them, they were like, he was kind of like a hero kind of guy, like this yeah. guy that right. beat back the Ottoman Empire and right. 
It, it yeah. sort of depends on who you talk to in Romania. The people who actually identify themselves as Romanians, I mean, Romanian, Romanian, I'll get to what I mean in a minute, consider him a hero. And and truly, I mean, he fought back the Turks who were invading. He fought back uh, some, was it the Mongols? I mean, he, you know, he kept his territory for Romanians. Um, in Transylvania, there's a there's a large Hungarian population. Okay. At one point, that was Hungary, and after one of the uh, World War One or whatever, it switched over, and Romania claimed it. Uh, the Hungarians don't necessarily feel that way about him because he also persecuted them. <laughs> so, see, it all depends on who you ask, huh? That's right. That's right. But you know. Um, I mean, there's statues to him everywhere and things like that, and at least in the areas like his hometown and stuff. So, yeah. yeah because I, and I don't know how accurate this is, but part of what I understand, part of warfare in those times was psychological warfare in that if you're if you had this reputation of being what he did, you know, pale people. In other words, it was like, I want to scare your armies away before they come and challenge me, that kind of thing. That was part of the reasoning That's right. why he did what he did. Right. Um, well, everybody likes to tell the story that when he was fighting one of the wars with the Turks, that he supposedly had 10,000 Turkish prisoners that he impaled along the highway, which was the road that he knew the advancing Turkish army would come. And they supposedly came up and saw all that and said, uh, maybe we'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like this guy, he doesn't take prisoners, in other words. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, so. No, we're not going to. Yeah, I don't want to be one of those guys. I don't want to find out what happens if I get captured. That's right. And I hate to say it, but that once upon a time, that's that was that was a that was the norm in a way that kind of warfare. That's right. um, uh, let me ask you, mentioning warfare, did you ever come across when you were doing your your research? Um, any type of, whether you call it a shapeshift or anything, having to do with battlefields, any strange occurrences or things being seen at battlefields. Um, I uh, I'm trying to think. There's a, uh, I mean, a lot of the battlefields, like especially Civil War battlefields, mm -hmm. are supposedly haunted, like Gettysburg and everything right, else. Right, right. People take tours there all the time. Um, I hadn't gone to any major battlefields. I went to Perryville in Kentucky, which is okay. about the only major battle in Kentucky. Uh, but there is a fort uh, in in Perrysburg, Ohio, which is up northwest around Toledo. Okay. And uh, it was it's called Fort Meigs, and okay. it was built for the War of eighteen twelve, and uh, it's been rebuilt on the same site because obviously the original fort's gone. But some of the uh, soldiers, it's a small cemetery outside the gates. Mm -hmm. They believe that there's still, you know, bodies that had not been found sure. scattered in the grounds. The fort came under attack during the War of 1812 twice by British and uh, Native American, their Native American troops. Uh, and the fort was just kind of like an open stockade with not a lot of places to go. So the British were throwing in, you know, rocket cannon, all this kind of stuff, all this artillery. And a lot of guys died, but in both times, the fort held out mm -hmm. with a heavy loss of life. But you can go there now. It's a public, it's a historic location. Right. And the uh, people that are the guides, they're dressed in period clothing. And I got some stories from them okay. about uh, being there after hours and hearing gunfire, hearing horses, uh, seeing, actually seeing Indians 
one person said that she, as she walked out to her car, her, uh, the end of her shift, she was walking out to her car in the parking lot and it was dark. She said that she was, she heard sort of like a clanking sound like alongside her. And she said, I recognize that from the guys that wear the uniforms, the other, you know, the, the male soldiers, I recognize it as being like the, the equipment that they were just kind of jingling and all that kind of stuff. And she said, and I looked at the corner of my eye. She said, I could see what looked like a, uh, like a shadowy figure of a soldier. So she was thinking that she was actually being escorted out to her car okay. by one of the soldiers in the fort. So I, you know what? And, and I've been to Gettysburg a few times and but people don't realize, especially, you know, um, that there were, it's like you said, even though supposedly they buried the dead from both sides. Right. Research I've done, you know, things that I've, there was a lot of um, soldiers that were left where they lay. In other words, especially from right. the Confederacy. That's, you know, like, because first of all, people don't realize, like St. Gettysburg, it was July very, it was the heat, uh, you know, you had to basically bury people very quickly or, you know, especially when you, I think it was like 55,000 dead that you had in that three day period. Um, and I, I tell people sometimes as far as uh, the hauntings in some of these places, it's that back then uh, people placed a lot of importance on being buried in consecrated ground as in a cemetery, as in the burial process, that, you know, and or the, and the religious, whatever your religion was, that um, the, in other words, being left in the field to disintegrate, you know, sometimes that's where you do get, not so much, how can I say it? Not so much the fact that they're dead per se, that they died in war. It's the fact that they're left there right. in the ground to rot, you know, without, mm -hmm what people in those, in those times thought of as important, which was the burial process, a religious ceremony being laid to rest in uh, consecrated ground. I said, I said, even back then in cemeteries, uh, God knows everybody's dead. If you were either uh, somebody from the fringes of society an undesirable or a pauper, they would bury you off in the corner behind the weeds Okay, because they didn't want you to mix with the regular nice folk of the town. That's right. That's how much people, uh, how much importance they placed on what happened to you even after death. Right. Um, so a lot of the, I think a lot of those uh, occurrences that happen in battlefields, it's because of the circumstances of what happened to them after they died. Um, so I've visited Vietnam a couple of times. And you have. The Vietnamese have a... Uh, very, very strong belief in ghosts. Mm -hmm. And this has become actually a, a multi-million dollar industry right now, which is that because they have the same belief that when you die, you need to be, um, you know, respectfully buried with the full religious rights and right. everything else. And if possible, back in your own village, your own hometown, wherever it was. Okay. Well, you can imagine the war where you had guys, you know, Vietnamese on both sides were all over the country and mm -hmm. dying in horrible circumstances. Uh, some of them bodies still not found, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or never returned or never getting proper uh, burial. And so the Vietnamese believe that these are ghosts, that they're all, they're out there now. And, in, and until they are 
literally laid to rest properly. They will always afflict somebody. Um, and so there's this cottage industry that's grown up where there are people who are basically like mediums um, okay. who you can go to. You pay the money and mm -hmm. tell them a little bit about your loved one or whatever, and they will tell you, well, you need to go to the you know south uh, south of the country and you know look for them over there and return. And, and this has become a multi-million dollar industry uh, simply because of the belief that they have. And it's it's really it's really it's really tragic to think that um, that people would feel that way that you know the loved ones are not yes, yes. at rest and that they have to do all these gyrations and pay money and everything else to oh yeah to do it. And, and, and I mean, you think about it, what are the chances of finding a body that was, God, somebody that was killed, what, 50 years ago? Oh, yeah, right. And, uh, you know, um, and I don't know if you heard about this, John, there there was an article written, this was after the, the nuclear meltdown tsunami thing in Japan. There was a writer, he wrote the article, I can't remember for which magazine out of the UK, that he had gone and he had interviewed where there was a bunch of people being taken over by ghosts of the people that had died in the tsunami, in this wipeout, oh. whatever it was. And they, I want to say it was a Buddhist priest. Basically, he's, he ended up having to do a bunch of exorcisms of people being influenced or supposedly possessed by these victims that had died very quickly. And that now they, they, they still didn't understand it's a very interesting story mm -hmm. about um, uh, basically that it, it that these, I mean, it, there was one girl he describes that she basically had to go through 20 of them because I guess in their case, she was a medium. And again, the same theme ran through all of the personalities or ghosts or whatever that he contacted was they're They're not sure what happened to them. All right. Or it was so quick things of this nature. Uh, right. And I know that in the Asian countries, there's, there's a very strong belief in, um, oh, yeah. in ghosts and things like that. Sure. Not just, yeah, all over. I mean, Japan, China, Vietnam, yes. Cambodia, everywhere. Yes. Yeah. They, they, and I know in the Philippines and by the way, those ghosts, some of them can be very, you know, vengeful. They're like, um, this is not like, Oh, you're going to the house and they look at you and everybody runs out. No, they can be, right. Uh, what was the movie that came out that I know they adapted it to the UK? What was it? The Ring? The Ring, yeah. Was it The Ring? That originally mm -hmm. was from Japan. It was a Japanese-based right. movie. And it's like, you're not, you're not getting away from this thing. It's like, there's no right. salvation. There's no happy ending because these things don't stop. Don't ever, like, call it quits. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about the, the Japanese, too, you're right. They have this, they have this really wonderful ghost lore but they're all they're all vengeful ghosts that yes. want to you know take it out on you but the interesting thing is that a lot of their ghosts are also shapeshifters so you know here we have a ghost right well you know mm -hmm. what a ghost is it's uh, some shadowy figure or something you recognize it but in japan a lot of their ghosts are shapeshifters so uh, if a ghost comes back for revenge let's say okay. uh, it can when it materializes or whatever it can also change its form so that it can come back as a different person Let, let's say it's a jilted lover or something mm -hmm. you can come back as like that that lover and you know kill your ex-fiance or something in that form although you're a ghost okay so it's really they, they get everything in there ghost shapeshifters they, they get it all 
ultimately they're going to get you though. And yeah. I've even heard of um, a lot of ghost stories out of the Okinawa, the base, the military base there. Yeah. I've heard of a lot of people stationed there that have had some really unusual um, ghost stories or weird stuff that's happened to them while they're 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 living over there in Okinawa. And you know that there's, I mean, there's a history there that predates the, you know, the Americans being there in Okinawa, exactly. as far as, uh, but yeah, it's very. People don't realize that in in um, where was it? God, I wish I could remember. There was a show that National Geographic put out maybe ten years ago. I'm thinking, but sometimes I lose track of you know how long things. And it was based out of they had a guy who was like an urban explorer. I want to say he was half Korean. And he went through all these countries there in that area of Asia, you know, exploring, you know, these uh, urban myths slash mm -hmm. ghost stories. But the, the intent of what he tried to do was disprove it as in all of this is just folklore. But it was incredible how much belief there was, strong belief. Oh, yeah. And if a place ever got a reputation as being haunted, like kissing goodbye, nobody's going to live there. That's right. It's like for. You could you could give it away for free <laughs> and you would not have any takers on, let's say, an apartment or something where anything had gone on there. And um, as a matter of fact, there was one time an article I read. This happened here in Deadwood in South Dakota, post-Civil War. Um, and they used to have uh, a gathering of they had used to have Chinese. You know, they had a part of the town of Deadwood where the Chinese lived. Mm -hmm. And there was a story, it came out in the paper, let's put it that way. It, even it, there was a, it came out in the paper a couple of times for Deadwood where there was a Chinese lady and somebody got into her place where she lived and basically bludgeoned her to death or hatcheted her to death with a hatchet. And a couple of days later, they, they rented out, I guess they cleaned up quick, I don't know. They rented out to another family who that night heard the reenactment of the murder. Mm. And that, that was it. And the newspaper, the guy who wrote the little small article says, I'm sure this will be go this piece of land will be going up for sale for dirt cheap in a few in a couple of months. Sure. Because they were saying that was it. Once that happened, nobody, they didn't care. Nobody would want to tempt fate by living in a place where you had a ghost in there. Right. That, that, that and let me tell you something, those stories, I think a lot of people I know are into the reality thing, but to me, the folklore and the stories, like just what you were describing about Dudley Town, I think is so fascinating. Yeah. Because you really don't know, even if there is no truth or there is no hardcore, you know, evidence, maybe there is, who knows? I think that is so interesting. Um, you know, besides, uh, you know, sometimes people, they want to overanalyze things and, you know, have the stories end up, you know, it, with his ending how's that instead of just let it be what it is but anyway john i wanted to thank you so much for joining us tonight you have been absolutely wonderful i could speak to you oh so much <laughs> well thank you marlene it was, it was you, a lot of fun i appreciate do you it. have any books or anything that you're planning now for coming up um no i mean i'm working on uh something not ghostly at all i'm working on historical fiction. well i shouldn't say that i have a historical fiction novel that my agent is trying to sell it does have a ghost in it now that i think about okay it. okay any can you give away what what time period we're talking about oh uh, yeah it would be 19th century cincinnati and it's based okay. on a real a real uh journalist named lafcadio hearn okay so i've heard of him wait a minute yeah. lafcadio hearn 
Well, he wrote, he translated a lot of the Japanese ghost stories. Yes, yes. Okay. Became That's a Japanese right. citizen, in fact. So. God, yes. That, that this is because back then there was little or no understanding as far as the Japanese culture and their paintings and things. Right. Wow. Well, he's Interesting. Pretty much credited with being the one that brought Japan, <laughs> Japan to the Western, right. the Western culture. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. So anyway, oh. we'll see how okay. that Okay. That'd be a good one. Yes, yes, most definitely. Again, thank you so much. It's been great for my podcast listeners. All What's right. a website that they can go to? to uh, JohnKachuba.com. Okay. Can. <laughs> and of course, you're on Amazon as far as they can, they all can find your yeah, books there, they right? they can find my books in their bookstore. They get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any any online person has it. So Perfect. Okay. Again, thank you so much, John. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Right. Same here. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Likewise. It was a great conversation. I loved it. So interesting. You know, um, when you, again, this is, this is, this is, this is Mark makes Mar- Marlene's heart all happy because to me, I love, first of all, I love the ghost stories again. And I, and I repeat it, you know, for all these paranormal shows that, yeah, they got to have the proof and they got to have a camera and they got to have the recording and they got to have the, this and the, that. And then did you see that? And it, okay, that's great. I get it. I get it. But, the, the ghost story just for the sake of being a ghost story. Okay. Maybe you don't get an explanation of how it started. Maybe you don't get in the definite answer as to who it is. It might be this person might be that person, but you really don't know. Um, and there is no conclusion per se, as in the ghost is exercised or the demon or whatever. No. How can I say this? Th- that same story that he said of Dudley town. Is it the curse of the Dudleys that's followed them all the way from Britain? Or is there something attached to the land that's what's causing the problem? Or is it a both? Or is it just coincidental that these cursed Dudleys end up on a piece of land that's cursed to begin with by the Native Americans that live there? I mean, you could take that in a lot of different ways. Um, see, I love that. I love that that, that you take that and um, things don't have to be 100% explained. I mean, this is where your imagination takes off. And uh, and that's, I want to say that sometimes when I was talking to him, a lot of the more, more modern horror stories or whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, they don't leave space for imagination. I, I, this is my personal belief, especially when you're reading or even when you're watching the imagination is really what scares us when you see read or see something or even listen to something let's say in the the form of a podcast when you're given enough to fill in the blanks to set the stage to tell you but then there's that space for your imagination to fill in the blanks or imagine or something that's i think is what really is truly scares a person if that's what you're looking for um, I'm going to give you a perfect example. There's, this is my, one of my all-time favorite ghost stories, which is the changeling, uh, George C. Scott starred in it. And supposedly the writer of that story based it on his own personal experience in a house that he rented out in Cheeseman Park in Denver. But anyway, getting to the, anybody's familiar with this, it came out in the eighties something, I think. 
All I know is that this was before DVDs. It was VHS. So I'm going to, I'm going to bet it was in the eighties, early eighties. Anyway, the book is a classic. It's a cult classic for people that are into ghost stories. In reality, there was no graphic, anything, you know, there was no, the. Uh, how can I say it? Because, you know, a lot of times in recent movies, you see this like shock, you know, somebody gets pulled in the movie, you know, some, you know, or the graphics, something really horrible looking and you're like, oh my God, you know, it's like, no, if you look at the Changeling, it's a great ghost story. It's well-written. The story is plausible. Of course, it has George C. Scott. Hello. It's a great actor. And, you know, you get somebody who the book, the protagonist is, he's not really looking to have a paranormal experience. He's not, he's trying to overcome personal tragedy in his life, but he's not looking to have this. But by the same token, when he starts having his first experiences, he's thinking that it might have something to do with the death of two of, his, his wife and his daughter. So that's kind of where the door leads open. But the story is great. It's scary. You watch it. It's interesting. It keeps you riveted all the way to the end. And there was no gore, you know, no horrific thing from, you know, whatever. Don't get me wrong. I like a horror movies, but I'm saying as far as a classic good ghost story, and then that, that that was done in the movie where the imagination fills in the blanks, the anticipation of what is he going to find? You know, what is it that's making that noise? What is it that's trying to communicate with him? Whatever, et cetera, et cetera. That to me, you know, that's the standard I look at as far as is this a good ghost story? Or, and then, of course, if it translates into a good movie, the way it's done. Um, and that's why I enjoy talking to John so much because it's things like that. Um, and I think to be honest with you, I think that that's why people love listening to ghost stories. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do a special edition because, you know, traditionally Christmas time was the time for ghost stories. And of course, this is when Dickinson and all these Victorian writers, um, MR James, they would come up with these ghost stories that they would tell. This was, this is the way people would tell it was, there was no TV, no radio. So you would have somebody tell the story and of course everybody would gather around and this was like a favorite pastime but especially around christmas time so i'm gonna try to do something for christmas like a ghost story i don't know what i'm gonna call it i'm gonna see if i can dig up some stories uh true kind of true you know the ones like i said there's I, I can't offer you proof but maybe put a christmas show together of ghost stories because it's that time of the year what can i say by the way um i'm sure that by the time you hear it uh until from October 19th to October 31st, if you go to Amazon and look me up, I am giving away 100 copies of my last book that came out, which is Hot Dame on a Cold Slab. It's true crime stories. And if you sign up, there's you've got 100 chances of winning. How's that? <laughs> you can't beat it. Uh, so if you're within that time period, go to... Uh, Go to Amazon and you can either find me on my, you can either find the book directly by the title or go to my author's page as Marlene Pardo Pelliser and you'll see it there. It's through Goodreads. Goodreads is the one that's sponsoring the giveaway uh, and enter so you could get a free copy of the book. 
And this is going to be a Kindle version of the book. And all I ask is, I would love to get an honest um, review from you guys. Uh, whatever you think of the book, I would just love it that if you do, if you are one of the persons that ends up getting a copy of it, I would really appreciate if you could go back and give an honest review of it. Anyway, guys, again, you can go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com, MarlenePardo.com. If you want to get, uh, if you want to, first of all, I have links to the podcast platforms where all of my podcast series come out from, all of them, whether it's Spreaker, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, uh, Podcast Addict, Mixcloud. I'm on all of those. Uh, but if you would like to listen to the podcast without commercial interruption, I have a link there that will take you to where you can listen to the podcast version of the show, either directly from your browser or you could click it and download the MP3 file. And again, this is if you don't want to be held up. I, you know, because if you go to any of these podcast platforms, there is going to be some type of advertisement attached to it. So either way, MiamiGhostChronicles.com, MarlenePardo.com. Uh, also, again, don't forget, I'm always looking for good ghost stories, weird happenings, strange stuff that happens to people. So go ahead, send me the story. Whichever way, you want to remain anonymous, that's fine with me. Whatever it is, it was short, long, whatever the case, let me know. I would love to hear from you guys. Again, thank you so much for being part of my audience. Please come back every week. I do appreciate it when you do come back and you subscribe to the show, you leave comments, you upvote it, whatever the case might be. Uh, and I've got a lot of fantastic guests lined up. Okay, I've got people already, I'm already preparing. I already got guests for season 11, season 11 of Stories of the Supernatural. That's where we're at right now, season 11. I've already got guests lined up a lot of interesting guests. Some of them repeat, but I've got a lot of new people coming on. So again, please come back every week and thank you for spending this time with me. Take care.